All right, well, I guess we can go ahead and get started. So we're in chapter 4, Romans chapter 4. Um, before we pick up there, let's kind of go over chapters 1, 2, and 3 quickly, because we're going to go through chapter 7 tonight. I know I said we were going to go through chapter 8, but here's the problem. Chapter 8 is the kind of summary of all the chapters ahead of it. And there's so much in it that I don't want to put it at the end of a time when we're rushed and we're trying to get through, you know, and and we rush through chapter 8. So we're going to start with chapter 8 next time. That way we can take some time and go through it. And then we'll go into chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12. And that starts... So chapters 1 through 8 are um, the explanation. That's the part where... Paul is defining what justification is and what salvation is and so forth. 9 through 11 is kind of encouraging the Jews because, I mean, if just think about this book. I mean, he, he goes into the Jews pretty hard in chapter 2, right? Um, and then in chapter 4, he's, he's essentially going to use Abraham, the person who, you know, they call themselves sons of Abraham. He's going to use Abraham to um, to, to kind of prove that they aren't correct. And so 9 through 11, he spends kind of encouraging the Jewish Christians that, that everything's going to be okay. And then chapter 12, he starts the application stuff. So we'll do 8 through 11 uh, next week. But to, to kind of go over what we've talked about so far. So we did this again in this afternoon, but um, just for the specific things we've been talking about. Chapters 1 and 2 talks about the Gentile and the Jews. Can anybody kind of explain why we know that Gentiles were supposed to follow the law, the law of Moses, the Old Testament? Can anybody kind of explain uh, in, your, in your own words, how do we know that they were supposed to be following it? Can you think about it? They were within the gates. Well, they were, yeah, the strangers in the gates, right? They would come into Jerusalem. But those that were outside, those that are Romans chapter 1, the ones that are um, living that lifestyle of, of sin that caused God to give them up to their uncleanness. Um, how do we know that they weren't just making up a law by themselves, right? One verse says that if they do it, they're a law to themselves. Does that mean that they have a different law than the Jews? Well, first, there can't be two laws of God at the same time, right? Because who's to say that? Who's to say that if if that's the case, why can't why can't Gentiles now? Who's a Gentile today? If you, what's the what? When you say someone is not a Christian. Yeah, someone is not a Christian. So if those people. Why can't they be under the same thing that the Jews were or that the Gentiles were in the Old Testament in that, you know, there's good things that, that people outside the church do all the time, right? They help the poor. They feed the, the hungry. They take care of the fatherless and the widows. They do all these good things. They even, you know, they, they even um, support government and, and that's things that in this book we're commanded to do as Christians, that would mean that they're okay because they're a law to themselves. We know that's not true, right? We know that they're, they're supposed to be following the law of God. 
Well, so were the Gentiles. I mean, over and over again in chapter 1, especially look at chapter 1, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree. What is God's righteous decree? The Old Testament, right? Mm-hmm. In, their, in their time period, when they're alive, God's righteous decree. The word decree is, is something that is that is proclaimed, that is a law, right? Mm-hmm. A command. They know God's righteous laws. But those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. See, they they had the chance to know the Old Testament, but they didn't. Chapter 2, verse number 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment of another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So what are some of the things that the Gentiles were practicing that he talks about in chapter 1? Idolatry, right? But what else? Homosexuality. Homosexuality. Covetousness. Murder. Murder. Uh, Malice, verse number 29. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless, right? So he says, you're guilty of the exact same things, Jews. Now remember, in this, when this book is being written, these these Christians in Jerusalem had had something, or Christians in Rome rather, had something interesting happen a few years before that, and that is, all the Jews were expelled from Rome uh, under under the Roman emperor. Now they're allowed back. So there's already some hostility there, not only because they're Jews, but also because. The Jews are are hostile toward the Gentiles because they're Gentiles, right? The Gentiles are hostile to the Jews because they're the newcomers. They're the the people that you know, just put it in our culture today, right? They're the people that are going to take our jobs, and they're yeah. you know those are, they're they're um, immigrant immigrant type things. I mean, they were there before, but they're back now, and so there's there's this hostility, and so Paul understands that that's going to happen. That's something that happens a couple times in the book of Romans is Paul knows he's so intelligent. He knows what someone is going to be thinking about what he's saying. And so chapter two, he starts talking to the Jews and he says, you're you're in sin, too. You're no better than them. You have committed the same sins. Um, Chapter three. So then he says, so verse number one, then what advantage has the Jew if if we're exactly alike, what's so special about the Jew? Well, the Jew had circumcision. But what's more important, the law of God or circumcision? The law of God, right? You, yes, you had circumcision, but circumcision doesn't matter a whole lot, Jew. Okay, that's a physical thing. It's a physical showing of your following God. The important thing is... The word of God. You had the word of God. You had the oracles, verse number two, and now you, now you have, um, you've rejected them. So chapter three, all are lost. So chapter four then is how do we start fixing this problem? Now he's already said it in chapter one. What is the power of God to salvation? To the Jew first and to the Greek. Do what? What is the power of God to salvation? Romans 1. So I get Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am ashamed of the gospel. 
Yeah, read it. Go ahead. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. All right. Verse 17, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we've talked about what it means from faith to faith. It just means any time in the history of man, we've been saved by faith. Now, chapter 4. If we're going to be saved by faith, is it the faith of the Gentile in idolatry, in self-mutilation at times, in, in, in making up of your own way of salvation? Is it the faith of the Jew in the Old Testament through the sacrifices and the temple and the Torah and, and that sort of thing? No. Because he uses Abraham as an illustration. Verse number one of chapter four. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Okay, so verse 31. Do, do we then overthrow the law? This is chapter three, verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We stand by it, right? Do Christians believe in the Old Testament? Faithful Christians? Do faithful Christians believe in the Old Testament? Yes. Whenever somebody says, you don't believe in the Old Testament, I say, yes, I do. I believe in it. It's real. It's right here. I've got it. I believe in the Old Testament just like I believe in God. There's evidence that the Old Testament existed and does exist. No. We believe in the Old Testament... We believe what it teaches. We believe the morality that it teaches. We believe the doctrines, the theology, the commandment, the way of righteousness that it teaches. Just because you believe it does not necessarily mean that that is the thing that you're supposed to be following, right? I believe in the patriarchal system, but I don't follow the patriarchal system because I'm not bound to it. So, chapter 4, verse 1. Well, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Our father according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted for him for righteousness. Faith induces obedience. Faith. um, Hebrews 11 verses uh, 18 and 19. By faith, Abraham, when he did not know where he was supposed to go, God tells him what? Leave Ur of the Chaldees. And what does he do? He leaves Ur of the Chaldees, right? Now, remember, which happened first? He left Ur or he was circumcised? He left Ur. He left Ur first, right? It wasn't until after that and Zipporah circumcises him, right? So, um, so verse number four. Now, to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift, but at his due. If, if Abraham had worked his salvation, worked to earn his salvation, it would be something that God owed him. But he didn't do that. He did it by faith. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also spoke of the blessings of the one who, whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, David said that, right? David says, blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are not covered, or whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Did David have faith in God? 
did 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 David worship God? Yes. I was glad when they said, "Let us go up to the house of the Lord." Right. So, um, so he uses Abraham and David here as the illustration of just just because you have the faith and you've grown up in the Old Testament and it's been going for a thousand fifteen hundred years now. I understand that that your your faith is rooted in the Old Testament. That's fine. But just understand that just because your faith is rooted in the Old Testament does not mean that faith equals the Old Testament, the law of Moses. Look look over at chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the, through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, Faith is null and the promise is void. Wait. If it's the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, well, yes, it is the adherents of the law that are to be heirs, right? But the problem is they were putting their faith in the in the law of Moses, not in God. Like we talked about this afternoon, there is a difference in putting your faith in God and allowing that faith to be worked out through following the scriptures and putting your faith in the scriptures and allowing that faith to be worked out in you having some semblance of worshiping God. If you go to worship services and you are doing it, um, have you all ever heard the statement? Well, we do it because the Bible says so. You ever heard that statement? That is the worst statement we could ever say. We don't do it because the Bible says so. We do it because God wants it and he told us that's what he wants it. Yes, he did it by way of the scriptures. But it's very easy for that statement to turn into a worship of the scriptures rather than a worship of God. We we have to be careful that if like like we said this afternoon, our view of scriptures is is how do I want to say this? The correct interpretation of scriptures is also combined with some semblance of traditions that causes us to to be like the way we are, right? So why do we have just at Warm Springs Road? Why do we have a full time minister on staff? Is there a scripture that says thou shalt have a full time minister on staff? No. no. Is there a, is there a, uh, the ability to have one? Yes. Right. That's why we have one. But we have one because we need it, not because the Bible says you have to have one. Right. It's it's, it's that sort of thing. When we see that traditions, these Jews were were holding their traditions in equal with the Word of God. So if one of our traditions is harmful to the word of God, harmful to our faith, or even slowing our faith down, we have to get rid of the tradition rather than get rid of the word, right? Only because this word is not special, except it came from God. If it didn't come from God, it's worthless, right? And so our faith can't be in the the Bible. Our faith has to be in God. And we follow that faith through what the Bible says because we know that he gave it to us. So 
Um, let, let's kind of skip around in chapter four because I know we went through um, we went through a good portion of it in, in worship this afternoon, talking about how he hoped against hope, verse eighteen, because it didn't make sense, but he still believed because he understood that verse um, verse number twenty. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew stronger in his faith as he gave glory to God. Once we realize that, once we give God the glory, we will realize that the things that don't make sense to us, we do them because we glorify God. Otherwise, we start worshiping the Word rather than the one who gave the Word. So, for instance, if we say, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Why? First Peter three twenty one, Mark sixteen, over and over. So many passages in the New Testament. But we don't just get baptized because the Bible says to. We get baptized because God wants us to, and He told us through the Bible. Is that is that difference making? Is that difference being clear to anybody, or is that? Am I kind of muddying the waters that's, here? That's, that's the extreme thin line, and that's why so many churches, denominational and otherwise, are so close. You know, it's almost a feeling of you're you're right there, and that's that fine line is not being able to discern between telling somebody that baptism doesn't save you, and then people in the church would have a heart attack. But it's all of it that saves you. It's the whole, you have to believe, you know, or yeah. what you say, that it's the totality of what's written in the scripture, even though it may not all be at once, that, that you have to discern to, to understand that's what right. saves you. So and the, you have the to word think- has to be, we don't worship the word, but it is from God. And that is what I believe that the promise right. is fulfilled as being perfect in the word of God. Right. And you have to think also these Jews, their traditions had become equal with God. Yes, very much. And and so when they hear about the Torah, they're hearing about the Torah and the mitzvah and and the 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 commentary on the Old Testament just as much as the Old Testament. And so their faith is in that. What happens when a true honest interpretation of the scriptures which are just the word of God, the breath of God, 2 Timothy 3:16-17. What happens when a true interpretation of this book contradicts with the scriptures the jews would say well your interpretation is wrong but the truth would be the tradition must be wrong because the scriptures are true only because they came from god otherwise they're just a bunch of words on on a you know if this book didn't actually come from god it's a waste of time and and the traditions have to be secondary and that's their problem is they're not realizing that they're putting all of their faith in this Old Testament and the system and the traditions and so forth and into what had become Judaism by the first century. They're failing to remember that the guy that they put on a pedestal, right, to the Jew, what did they call heaven? Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom, right? You call heaven Abraham's bosom, and yet you don't realize that if you're correct, Abraham isn't there. 
because he doesn't have the he doesn't have the Torah and the mitzvah and the the system of Judaism. He lived long before it ever came, right? So that's chapter four. He's he's saying if you want faith, you have to have the faith like Abraham, not in the law of Moses, not in the system of Judaism, but in God. And in the word of God that is amenable at that time, that is in power at that time. Abraham didn't need the Old Testament law of Moses because he was in a different time. He had faith to follow God in whatever he told him to do. So look down at chapter 4, verse 22. This is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It was it was written not just for Abraham to encourage Abraham, but for us, because at some point in the future, we were going to have this question of. So what do we do with the Old Testament now that Jesus has come? Do we just accept it wholeheartedly and keep following it? No. Do we throw it out? No. It's a mixture of both. You don't just accept it just because it's there, but you also don't throw it out. You take what you can and you learn from it. So, chapter 5. This is the passage that, that talks about this peace with God. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Gentiles. Did the Gentiles have peace with God? Nope. No. What did the Gentiles view as God? The world around them, right? Nature. So anytime there was a hurricane, God is upset. They they made I mean you, you study Roman mythology and the gods of Roman mythology are just humans with extra yeah, with extra powers, right? They get mad, they get jealous, they get and it's not like God's anger and God's jealousy. It's like a child, right? Well, we've upset them, and so now they're mad at us, and they're going to send fire and lightning and so forth. They, did, they had no sense of a peace with God. The, gen, the Jew, by the time that the Jewish system ended, they had no peace with God either because God wasn't the important thing. The system of Judaism was. God is now secondary to the system that we've been living by for 1,500 years. Um, And so we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we've also obtained access by faith. Obtained means to to grasp. We've gotten it. We didn't reach out and take it from Him. We didn't earn it. But we've obtained it. We've we've reached out and touched and grabbed the thing that God had for us into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have this confidence. Verse 2. We stand in grace. We are confident. The Jew isn't confident because they don't really understand God. Gentile definitely isn't confident because they're terrified of their gods, right? But we stand, we're confident in the grace. Not only that, verse 3, 
But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put to shame. Remember chapter 1? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It means confused or disappointed in. I'm not. Hope does not confuse us. Because hope is. It's not just the fleeting, you know. I hope this. I mean, it's it's a we always say earnest expectation. It is understanding and knowing that it's going to happen. Unless something strange happens. It doesn't disappoint us. Because it's truthful. The hope that Abraham had. The hope that we have. Because God's love is poured out into our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit. Who has been given to us. The word poured out. Somebody get Acts chapter 10 verse 45. Acts 10 verse 45. And somebody else get Acts 1 verse 18. Acts 10, what? Acts 10.45 and Acts 1.18. Somebody get 118 for me too. 45. You said Acts 10.45. Yep. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. All right. It was poured out, right? We're talking about miracles here in Acts 10. Somebody get Acts one eighteen. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. All right. That's a very nice, pleasing passage, isn't it? No. The word gushed out is poured out. Okay, so this word means it can either mean a specific pouring, like when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles. It only went to who in Acts 10? Did it go to every Gentile? Every Gentile on earth received miraculous gifts and now they're able They're walking around speaking in tongues and healing sick and raising the dead and all this. No, who got it specifically in Acts 10? Cornelius and his household, right? Specific. It's a specific pouring. Acts 1.8, not so. When a body decays to that point, to the point where it falls from the noose onto the ground, it is not going to be a little trickle of gut spilling out, is it? And that's a nice, pleasing thought process, but it, it... it goes everywhere, right? Uh, I mean, just go go with Jim to work on any Tuesday. No, I'm just playing. Um, but it goes everywhere. This word means, it could mean a specific pouring out, and it could mean just a, a, a gushing out. This morning, we were getting ready to leave, and Becca grabbed her purse, and she had Dalton's cup of water for, for his medicine. And she grabbed her purse and, and was like, okay, I'm, let's go. And she knocked over the water and poured straight onto her foot. And went everywhere. It can be like that, right? It can go everywhere, or it can be specific. So let's read this again. Hope does not put to shame, Romans 5, verse 5. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It can be both there. It can be, he poured it into our hearts, 
through the through our teaching and understanding, and it's also been poured out into our hearts in that now the entire world is different because of this book, right? Nations have been founded based on beliefs in this book. Nations have been destroyed based on beliefs in this book. Um, Whether they want to agree with it or not, we keep time by this book. We keep time by it, right. I mean, culture the world over, whether it's in America or in India or China or anywhere else, these completely different cultures, and yet it's all been shaped by this book, the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Um, So verse number 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Alright, so notice these three things that he says. Verse 6, we were still weak. Verse 8, we were still sinners. Verse 10, we were still enemies. Okay? While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we have now been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now we will be reconciled. Now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by His life. So He says we were weak, we were sinners, we were enemies. Christ died for the ungodly. It means the irreverent and the impious. Ungodly. Irreverent and impious. What does impious mean? If you meet a person that is so pious. Righteous. right? Anytime I go see Miss O.P., I think pious, right? She's, she's loving and caring. And every time I walk in, she says, I was there last Sunday. I said, no, you weren't, Miss O.P. <laughs> yes, I was. I'm always sitting right there in my seat, right? Um, That's awesome. <laughs> what? No, she, she's pious, right? That pious is that gentle, quiet, righteous spirit. He says he died for the ungodly. That word ungodly can be translated irreverent or impious. Chapter 1, they're irreverent. They have no regard for God. Chapter 2, they're impious. They have no regard for the gentle, quiet righteousness. It's all about making me fit, making me look good, making me a good Jewish boy, right? He says, God for the ungodly. We were, we were weak, without strength. We were sinners. We were enemies. Gentiles want to be strong. Uh, there again, he's using, he's using imagery that each group is going to, to, um, to kind of resonate with. Gentile wants to be strong. They come from a nation like Rome. That's what? World power at this point, right? The, the biggest, baddest military that's ever existed up until this point. The biggest, baddest empire that's ever existed up until this point. Maybe, uh, arguably, in the, in the entire history of the world. The Gentile hears we were weak, and that's the last thing he wants to hear, right? Jew hears that we were sinners. That's the last thing he wants to hear too, right? And Paul is, 
over and over again, he's jabbing at each one of them. You were ungodly. You were irreverent and impious. You were weak, Gentiles. You were sinners, Jews. You were enemies. Um, And that kind of combines both of them. More than that, verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Outside of the Old Testament, outside of the law, we now have received reconciliation only through Jesus Christ. So, then he talks about the uh, the idea of Adam. So, let's just read this. Somebody read Romans 5, 12 through 15. Romans 5, 12 through 15. And it reads, Let not sin, that I'm reading the King James Version. Okay. Say 12 through 15. Yep. Five. Yep. Okay. 12. Wherefore, as by one man sins enter into the world, and death by sin, and so death passes upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not input where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned. After the similitude of Adam's transgression was his fixed who is figure of him that was to come. But not as not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For thou, the offense of one, many be dead. Much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abound unto many. All right, so if you don't know what Calvinism is, Calvinism is, uh, it's, it's often defined by Tulip, but it's basically this. Any, any of the, the major religions that came out of the Reformation are going to believe this, okay? So uh, Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Baptist, the, those, those religions um, are all going to believe in Calvinism. And what it means is, this is just boiled down, that mankind sinned in Adam. And because of Adam's sin, that sin has passed down to every single person who has ever lived. And so you are guilty of Adam's sin. And you are guilty of the sins of your father and of the people who came before you. And, 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 and the farther down the line we go, the more sinful man becomes. Which is somewhat true. The farther we go in history, it seems like the more sinful man becomes. Mm-hmm. But the idea of Calvinism is that, that actual the guilt of sin has passed from, from your father to you, from Adam all the way down through the lineage of mankind to you. And because of that, you are so sinful... You cannot make righteous decisions. God must make righteous decisions for you. And because God makes righteous decisions for you, you can't go against that righteous decision. And so you can never lose that righteousness. Once God chooses you for righteousness, you cannot go against it. If you are um, if you are a Christian, it's because God has chosen you to be a Christian. Um, and I heard one time, uh, I don't, I, I don't know if this is true, but I heard a story about a, about a debate between a, a Calvinist and a member of the church. And the Calvinist put an, put an apple up on the, on the dais and said, God has predestined 
that I will eat that apple tonight. And the member of the church jumped up and took a big bite out of it. <laughs> because, I mean, if he predestined it, then he should have predestined that I was going to take a bite out of it. But Calvinism is the idea that you are so lost, you can't make a good decision. So God has to make that decision for you. And if God makes a decision for you and makes you do something, you're not going to do it elsewise, right? If God, uh, for instance, God decided, yeah, go ahead. They will make their plan of salvation on faith. Yeah, exactly. 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 They, um, if, I mean, just think about Noah, right? Noah was a righteous man, but the Calvinists would say that God made him righteous. And Noah had no choice but build that ark because God was making him do it. And so that's Calvinism. This passage is the passage where it starts. If sin does not pass down from one person to another, from Adam to all people, then the rest of Calvinism fails, right? It's, it's just like the plan of salvation. What's the plan of salvation? Here, believe, repent, confess, be baptized in single words. We understand that there is much more to the plan of salvation than just five simple words that are repeated off. But, but my point was that's the individual thing. What? The plan of salvation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. And if, if, if the word of God is not true, the plan of salvation falls with the word here, right? It's the same thing. If, if sin does not pass from one person to another, then Calvinism falls with the very first point. Now, let's go through this again. Chapter 5, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews better off? Not at all. For we already charge that both... Jew and Greeks are under sin. It's written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No, that's chapter 3, sorry. Chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Doesn't that sound like it? Just from a, just from a cursory glance at it, it sounds like sin passed from one person to another. But and it did. Except for his phrase, for it all did. Sin. That's a completely different context. It did. Sin passes from one person to another. The guilt of sin does not pass from one person to another. Have y'all ever met a father and a child, and the father and the child partaking the same things, the same sinful activities? Have you ever met a man who's an alcoholic and had come to find out the reason he's an alcoholic is he grew up with a dad who was alcoholic, right? You meet a man who has an anger problem, grew up with a dad who has an Yeah, of course, right? Sin passes from one person to another. The guilt of sin does not. All have turned aside, verse 12. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Chapter 3, verse 12. Everyone is sinful. And we pass our sins on. We do not pass the guilt of those sins. So look at verse number 14 of chapter 5. Even of those who whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You're guilty of sin, even though it's not the sin of Adam. What was the sin of Adam? Not eating the tree. Don't say eating the tree. What was the sin of Adam? He wanted to be like God, right? 
His ego. That's the sin. The eating of the tree is the symptom for the sin, right? The the problem, the sin, the the, the uh, what's King James say? Similitude of the sin of Adam. Yeah, yeah the similitude, the, the likeness is that wanting to be like God. Not everybody commits that sin, right? I don't think I've ever committed the sin of wanting to be God. I've committed the sin of of thinking myself as my own dictator, right? But that's not the same type of sin as Adam. Uh, Alcoholism is not the same type of sin as Adam, right? But all, verse number 14, yet death reigned from Moses, Adam to Moses, even over those who didn't sin like Adam. Because sin passed from Adam to the whole world. He showed us how to do it, right? Well, and even the consequences of sin. sin. Well, yeah, the consequences of, of the leaving of the, of the garden and, and that sort of thing, yes. But, but he's the first one. He's the first one that showed us how to do it. And so because of that, it has passed, but we are not guilty of that. Verse number 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one's man trespass, much more have grace of God and free gift of the grace that uh, of the that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Condemnation to who? Him, right? Adam's sin didn't bring condemnation to you or to me. Adam's, see, here's the thing. The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, Adam's sin, brought condemnation to Adam. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. That's the difference between Adam and Jesus. They're similar in that their actions brought about something. But Adam's sin brought brought condemnation to Adam. Jesus' Jesus's sacrifice and, and death on the cross and resurrection brought life to everyone. That's why the second Adam is so important. That's why the second Adam is better than the first. Verse uh, 17. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, did it lead to condemnation for all men? Yes. Didn't bring it, right? Leading to it and making it happen are two different things. Adam's sin brought condemnation to Adam, but it led to the condemnation of all mankind because he taught us how to sin. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Physical life, Genesis 3, what we talked about in the book of Job last week, that we were supposed to die a violent physical death when we sinned. Genesis 3, 2 and 3 and then verse 21. But he took that on. He took the violent physical death and also spiritual life, which we're going to talk about uh, here in chapter six. So any questions about the sin of Adam and being passed down? The sin passes. Yes. The, the attitude, the the openness of sin and the ability to, to do it. Yes. 
The condemnation, the guilt, no. That doesn't pass down from individual to individual. Otherwise, I mean, there is... In that sense, I would have to um, on the day of judgment, yeah, because we're all guilty of the same thing. God would have to judge everyone of, of I'd be judged for your sins. Because we're all we're all man, right? Exactly. Exactly. So so chapter five is talking about the free gift that God has given us through the salvation because of our our personal condemnation. So, all right, chapter 6. This is a chapter that, you know, if you're going to hear a sermon on Romans, it's going to be chapter 6, right? Because for some reason, I know why, because it says the word baptism in it, and we just like hone in on any time the word baptism comes. Um, chapter 6 is the one that most people know, but let's go over it, and we're not going to go over it in too much depth, but we will read through it and make some notes uh, as we go along. So chapter 6, verse 1. Somebody read verses 1 through... Uh, verse 1 through 4. Romans 6, 1 through 4. It says, King James Version, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin, that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we, that we are dead to sin, live any longer therein. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized unto Christ, into Christ were baptized into his, into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. All right. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Not united with him. That's not that's not the resurrection day. We're united with him through our baptism. Right? We have part of him. We are part of him. Um, in John 17, Jesus prayed that the disciples, that his disciples would be one in him, just like he was one in the Father, right? Now remember what we talked about last week. Who who caused Jesus to raise from the dead? The Father, right? Uh, Jesus did it because he walked out of the grave of his own free will, right? Romans 1 says the Holy Spirit did it, Right? And what we talked about last week is this, this, uh, I, I didn't think it had gotten down here, but the problem of the, the prayer to Jesus, um, when one of them does it, all three of them are doing it because they are united. They are God. They are united. When Jesus prays in John 17, that we should be one as he is in one, that we, that we would be one together. First John one. And we're with God. That means Romans 6, 5. We're united with him. We are part of him now. Right? What is the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians 12. What is the body? The church, right? Ephesians 1, right? So so we are part of Christ. We are 
in a sense, part of deity. Does that mean we are deity? No. But we are united with him, right? So when we are raised, we are united with him in a resurrection like his. That means through baptism. It is only through baptism that we are united with him, that we become part of him. Doesn't mean that we're deity. Doesn't mean like some religious uh, people would teach that we will become deity one day. It means that we are united in purpose. We're united in, in passion. We're united in, in product. In, in what we do, we are all part of God. And I just alliterated that on the fly. Check that out. That's a sermon for you. Hard right outline Bible. Um, all right, so... So, uh, sometimes I even surprise myself. All right, so, I surprise myself all the time, like when I walk into walls and all that stuff. All right, so, um, verse number one, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? There's the, there's the question that Paul foresees happening. If sin causes grace, right, we have grace because of our sin. Why don't we sin more? So that we can get more grace. I mean, it makes sense. The problem is, we've died to sin. Now remember this idea of death to sin, because that's all chapter 7 is. We've died to sin. When it says, God forbid, your translations may say, by no means, it means that it is physically impossible. Okay, God forbid, doesn't it sound so pretty? God forbid, like God's not going to let that happen. But remember, God cannot make us sin and he cannot make us not sin. We're not Calvinist, right? So God forbid is not saying God's not going to let it happen. If we choose to sin, he will let us sin, right? Um, He could stop us through providence or through some, some, you know, providential action, but he's going to let it happen. When it says God forbid, that means it is impossible I don't know why we translated it, God forbid. I've always meant to look up why they got that translation. Um, But uh, I'm sure it's probably just a word-for-word translation from the Greek. But I want to know why. Why is that a colloquialism? You know, why is that an idiom that the Jews would use? God forbid. Um, But it means that it is physically impossible. Verse 5. Why is it physically impossible that we can continue in sin? Because when we were baptized... We became part of him. And God can't sin. So John says that it is impossible for a Christian to sin. Is that true? You say yes, because John said it. <laughs> but let's talk about why it's true, right? It's not true because, you know, we can't. We don't have the power. It's because we're Christians and we don't. We don't. We don't continue in it. Verse number two, sin still live in sin, right? Do we sin from time to time? Yes. But we cannot live in sin because we are part of God. We, we are united with him. Verse five, we know that our old self was, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So then he brings in this idea of slavery. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died from sin, 
or died with Christ, sorry, we believe that we will also live with him. This is all talking current day, right? This is not resurrection passage. If we've died to Christ, died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And we do the same thing. We live, we die once for all so that we can live to God. This is all current day. So verse 11, you, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Um, without saying the plan of salvation, what one word, so don't use baptism, what one word saves us? Hint, hint, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Gospel. Yeah, gospel or faith, right? I'm looking for faith specifically, right? Faith saves us. So anytime somebody says, you're saved by faith alone. Yep, it's true. I love doing it to people, <laughs> especially members of the church. When they say, you're not saved by faith alone. Yes, you are. You need to read the book of Romans. No, you're not saved by Yes, you are. You're saved by faith alone. That faith is not just a... It's, it's not an acknowledgement that something is true, right? It is a faith like Abraham that was willing to work, willing to do something because of it. If you believe in something, you're going to do it. Nowadays, uh, this is kind of a menial illustration, but nowadays this idea of cryptocurrency. Y'all heard of cryptocurrency? Bitcoin. It's Bitcoin. It's it's fake money. <laughs> kind of like our money now. Um, but cryptocurrency, people believe in it. What are they going to do? They're going to go spend all their money in it, right? People, There are people mortgaging their house to buy cryptocurrency. That's a bad decision, by the way. But... But if you believe in something strong enough, it will cause you to do something. That's the faith that we're talking about here. So verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Faith is powerful. Faith allows us to push out sin. Um, Now, do not feel bad when you answer this incorrectly because everyone answers this incorrectly before they study the book of Romans, okay? Are we sinners saved by grace? Now, I just said that, so you're not going to answer it, right? We are? We're sinners saved by grace? We're no longer sinners, right? The problem with that phrase, it's not wrong to say that phrase, but the problem with saying I'm sinner saved by the grace of God is that we're still putting ourselves into that position of being lost. We're still, well, I'm a sinner. No, I'm I'm not a sinner anymore. Do I sin? Absolutely. But I'm not a sinner anymore. I have the power now through faith to push sin out. There's only been one person who has lived an entire life without sin, right? Jesus Christ. But the Christian, given enough time, given enough faith, acknowledgement and understanding and, and teaching and, and, and knowledge of the new, of the, the gospel system, the Christian can come to a point where he no longer sins. Because we have enough faith to push it out. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Eventually, given enough time, given enough faith, a, a Christian could come to the point. It's, it's, it's theoretically possible that a Christian could come to the point where he would be strong enough to see sin and to not do it. And that he could live a sinless life from that point on. Problem is, very few, if anyone, ever gets to that point. Right? We all come to a point where we can we can push out the sins that we used to do. Right? But very few, if anyone, will ever get to the point where his faith is strong enough, his knowledge is, is whole enough to where he can not sin. Now... The problem with the I'm sinner, I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God. I understand the concept, and it's not wrong. But the problem with that is, are there days when when we go without sin? Yeah. Now, don't sit there at the end of the day and say, "Well, I didn't sin. I guess I'm a good Christian today. Tomorrow, I might sin, so I won't be a good Christian." But there are sin. There are days when we could go without sin, right? Some of us can't go very long without it. Because we're not there yet in our faith. We're not strong enough in our faith yet. And that's okay. Because there were times when Abraham wasn't strong enough in his faith either. Right? So, all right, y'all had something? Gary? Oh, yeah. I was just going back to uh, Romans 7 and 15. All down there. Yeah. Oh, that's going to take care of that question. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're just getting there. Yeah. So, what were you saying, Ron? Oh, <clears throat> When you were talking about faith, I was thinking that some denomination would use that verse that you just spoke about and not even include baptism into that. So if you read that and you don't understand baptism, you would think that scripture stands alone by itself. Right. You don't have to be baptized. Right. And that's the important part of, of not just taking a verse, pick, cherry picking it, and going with it, you know? Right. Um, especially from the book of Romans. Because, I mean, we're only five chapters, six chapters in, and it is already this deep. And we're not, by any means, getting to the bottom of any of this. Right? right? We've got four weeks to go through a book that usually takes. Well, I mean, Keith Moser at Memphis has has studied this book for over 30 years. I mean, he teaches it every year. He studies it nonstop, and he's still not to the bottom of this book, right? So, um, you know, this... Don't ever take a cherry-picked verse and make it say something, especially from the book of Romans. Because it... The likelihood of you getting it wrong is so strong. I feel like I understand the book of Romans pretty well. You want to know why? When I was in school, I got all A's and B's all through Memphis School of Preaching. Except the book of Romans. I got a C on it. And I determined myself, obviously, I do not know this book. So when I got out of school, I did nothing but study the book of Romans for an entire year. So I got fairly acquainted with the book. I'm, of course... I'll never get to the bottom of it, but this book is so difficult. Do what? It deals with the good and the bad of the man. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it deals with that need for justification and and 
not just the need, but how to get it, right? So let's go on. So verse uh, 17 of chapter 16, um, he starts talking about these slaves, and he says, you're, you're going to be obedient to something, either to sin or to death. Sin and death or to, to righteousness, verse 16. 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Romans 1, 9. Let me flip back there and read that verse real quick. Uh, Romans 1, 9 says, For God is my witness whom I serve in my spirit, or with my spirit, right? So you've obeyed from the heart. You're serving with your spirit the standard of teaching, the form of doctrine that King James says to which you are committed. It would be very easy for the Jew to start questioning whether or not there's a system at all anymore after reading this book. Because if the Old Testament system didn't save me, maybe there's no system at all. And that's a problem we have today. Well, we're not under law. We're under grace. Yes, you're under grace. But you're under grace understanding that you cannot live a life. You... You cannot live a life of sin. You, you've obeyed a form of doctrine. There is still a system. There is still a law. It's just not the law of Moses. All right, so... This, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, this is important for uh, new Christians, old Christians, whatever, because I don't think we're ever... We, I don't believe we'll, we can ever get to a point where there, we don't have sin. Because regardless of what's going on in somebody's mind, that's why God only God knows the heart of man. But it, it, what turns a lot of people away from religion in general, and specifically the church, is this idea of you are baptized into the church. And from that point on, that your life is going to be sinless, or you have to have a sinless life. But the even the scripture, it, it, it says that we can't. Live in sin. Everything yeah. you can't live in sin. You can't and also be a slave to sin, which means you're you cannot be owned by it or encompassed by it. So those, I think it can it almost be disheartening. What from my own experience, be be disheartened to a point of what's the point of even trying? If I'm trying to be perfect, because that's the only way I'm going to get into heaven. Yeah. Then well, what's the point? I think that that problem is really true. I mean, there are people with psychological issues; they cannot go to church because they get so scared of that. But um, the difference is we're not perfect, but that is a goal, right? right. When you're striving and, and towards that. Understanding that that's a goal. Striving towards perfection, though, but and as a goal and then leading somebody, I, I believe, to misleading somebody to think that, that you know, perfection is not attainable. Yeah. You want to strive for it, and, but that it is okay that, that there are going to be problems and you don't stumble that first time or get discouraged that first time. There's going to be many times you're yeah, going to absolutely. be discouraged. And I would, say, I would say it is possible, given, given the book of Romans, it would be possible, theoretically, theoretically like I was saying, yeah, yeah. for a Christian to get to the point where he no longer is tempted in those ways, yeah. that he is no longer tempted to sin. But we have to remember that the guy he uses as the illustration for faith lied about his sister being his wife twice. Lied about his wife being his sister twice, right? He refused to be circumcised when God told him to be circumcised, right? So the guy who's, who is the illustration of faith 
wasn't there either. And that's another important thing that, that we have these people I've talked about before, like taking David, for example, that by any accounts, we wouldn't want to know that person based off of what he did. Yeah, exactly. And, but then, and we should hold ourselves to a higher standard, but the standard maybe that we're holding against other people right. puts that barrier up. Yeah. Right. All right, real quick, and we'll move on. Um, I think all this kind of comes together, and we'll cover it more when we cover Romans chapter 8 next week. But Romans chapter 8 kind of brings all these hard questions into one thing, where he says, There's no condemnation for you who are in Christ because he has set us free from the law and introduced us to the law of the spirit of life. Right. And the whole difference here being you don't walk according to the flesh, you walk according to the spirit. That's not some mystical thing where the spirit gives you fuzzy tinglies in your heart and you do it. That's right. not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is the same thing John talks about in first John, where you walk in the light. You strive to conform yourself to the image of Christ every day. And even when you fall, the grace that is in Christ covers that. And that is justification. In that Christ's righteousness covers you as you are being molded into his image. Right. So look at verse chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, that means for the taking, the free gift of God, it is there for the taking. We reach out and we grab it, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she's been called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through Jesus, through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who is raised, who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the in the new way of the spirit not in the old way of the written code we've served in the new way of the spirit that's the new testament not in the old way of the written code so he uses the illustration of of a, a, a spouse who either leaves their husband and she's married again she's going to be an adulteress you can't have two laws going at the same time can't have mankind all jumbled up. You can't have mankind married to two different laws. That's one reason why the Gentiles were under the law of Moses. You can't have mankind married to two laws. But if one of the spouses dies, then you're able to be remarried again. Well, who died in this situation? It wasn't Jesus Christ. It wasn't the law. The law isn't dead, right? The law was nailed to the to the cross. It was fulfilled, but now we stand by it. It's not dead. Who died in this in this instance? Christ. Us. Right. Us, right? Now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive. We died. See, an illustration is only an illustration, okay? They break down at some point. And that's okay. 
this illustration of of the law and and of of a spouse and a marriage. When you first look at it, we died, so we shouldn't be able to be remarried because a dead person can't be remarried, right? But we're not dead anymore, right? We died to sin. We died to the Old Testament, but we were resurrected. We live a new life. We're not dead anymore. And so the, the illustration still stands. Chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say? What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Because just before this, he said that living in the flesh, or the Old Testament, anytime you read the word flesh in the book of Romans, it is the Old Testament. Living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law, and they were at work in our members. So is the... uh, Wait, who made us sin? Did we choose to sin? Well, verse number 20 of chapter chapter 6. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. We had the power to choose. God didn't make us sin. Did the Old Testament make us sin? Did we make us sin? Well, look, look here. Verse number 8. So, or verse 7, sorry. Of chapter 7. The law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known that it is, that it is uh, what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. The Old Testament didn't make us sin, but it showed us what sin is. Kind of like the don't touch the wet paint sign. The first yeah. thing I want to do is touch here's, the wet here's paint. A, here's a better <laughs> illustration. Here's a better illustration. I don't want anyone to think of a navel orange right now. What'd you just do? Thought of a navel orange. I told you not to. Right? I told you not to touch your hand to that iron. Why did you do it? I wanted to see if it was hot. I told you it was hot. Yeah, but I don't understand what's hot because I'm a child. Right? Um, I remember when we had our girls, Sarah would always run in and say, Dad, it's hot in here. And it was like 50 degrees. What? No, you mean it's cold. Yeah, that one. Right? The law didn't make us sin. The law didn't make Jews or Paul or the Old Testament Jews sin. But it showed them what sin was. And because of that, they were tempted in it. Does that mean the Old Testament is wrong? No, it did exactly what we needed it to do. The old te- we needed we needed to see what sin was, so that when Christ came, we would have that opportunity to one day get to the point where we can overcome our sins, right? By our own faith and our own maturity in the faith, we needed to know what sin was. I wouldn't have known what covetousness is until unless the law said, "Do not covet." Because then I knew, hey, when I want someone else's stuff, it's that's called covetousness. Well, now I want someone else's stuff. I've sinned, right? Um, then he talks about verse 9. I was alive apart from the law. When the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. He's talking about the, 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 the accountability, the level of accountability. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me because it it... It tempted me for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. 
And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. See, he, you see him answering these questions that he knows people are going to ask? Okay, well, if grace saves us, maybe we should sin more so that God's grace can come on us more. No, that's not true. Okay, well, then that must mean that the Old Testament is worthless. No, that's not true either. Okay, so if the Old Testament taught us how to sin, then that must mean the Old Testament was imperfect, that the Old Testament was sin or that it was wrong. No, it did exactly what it was purposed for. It was holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? No. Old Testament didn't bring death to me. Who chose to do it? Me. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might be sinful beyond measure. For we know the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. I'm sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. Alright, here is the passage in Romans 7 where everyone gets confused. And the reason for that is, I'm going to read it just from the beginning to the end as fast as I can read it without getting tongue-tied. Are you ready for this? Where does it start? Verse, uh, verse number 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. I'm sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin who dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is my flesh. Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what keeps I keep doing. Okay, this is this is the thing that that says, well, maybe this is Calvinism again. Maybe maybe we're prone to sin. Uh, what's that song? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Um, it's a song we sing all the time. Prone to leave the God I love. Okay, keep singing that to yourself and find me the lyrics, the the title. Okay, so maybe we're prone to sin. Maybe it's built within us. But faith is supposed to get to the... Come that fount of every blessing. Uh, But faith is supposed to get us to the point where we're not tempted anymore. So how is that possible? Well, let's go back through and read this carefully. We are both carnal spirits. Do what? Yeah, we're carnal spirits. Yeah, absolutely. Verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I believe he's embodying the the Jewish heart here. Okay? He's also he's talking about himself, but in this passage he's he's trying to get the Jew to realize. And so I believe he's embodying what Jews feel, what the Jewish nation has felt for so long. For what I do not, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good because the law gives me a way out. Right. If I'm stuck in sin, I want a law because I want an out. But if I'm not stuck in sin, I don't really care about the law, right? So many people today don't care about Christianity. Why? Because they don't think they're lost, right? 
if you don't think you're lost, there's no need in this. Um, verse 17, so now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. The Jews kept giving in to sin over and over and over and over again. And and like I said, I believe he's embodying the, the heart of the Jewish nation in this. That every time they look up, they've committed sin again and again. And all they want is to be forgiven. They keep keep the sacrifices, they keep the Sabbath, they do all these things and they keep screwing up, they keep messing up, and all they want is to be forgiven. Because it's sin that dwells within him. A long-standing practice of sin. They've been around it for so long. They've been in it for so long. I have the desire to do what's right. I want salvation, but I don't have a way of getting it. Because, what does the Hebrew writer say about the sacrifice of bulls and goats? It cannot take away. It doesn't have the power. I keep offering these sacrifices over and over and over and over again. And all I want is salvation. And I just can't get it because there is no possible way. He's embodying the Jewish nation here. But verse uh, number 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I keep every time I turn around, I'm reminded of my sin. I walk through Jerusalem and all I can hear is the bleeding of bulls and goats. Right. Death. We think of the the temple as being this nice, beautiful, marble, expansious thing, which is true. But you have to remember what happened there. Throughout all Jerusalem, all day long, you could hear animals being sacrificed at the temple over and over and over again. And all I want is to do what's right, and yet I'm constantly reminded of my sin. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. I feel stuck. I feel captive. I want to, I want salvation, but I can't get it. Verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The Jewish nation keeps wanting salvation, keeps wanting it. They can't get it. They're constantly reminded of their sins. They're, they're reminded of how horrible they are. And yet, now we aren't reminded of that we're no longer slaves we don't have to worry about it except in March when I go to Arab and it's my 10 year high school reunion I'm going to be reminded of it every day right but I'm going to see all those people and well, I won't see most of them most of them are in jail now but um, but it's 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 that constant reminder that is out that's gone in Christ. Verse one of chapter eight. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we'll go through chapter eight next week. But chapter seven, he starts off with 
talking about this, we're no longer married to the Old Testament. You can't be married to two laws at once. Then he talks about this, this embodiment of the Jewish nation. Because remember, even though he got onto the Jews so bad in chapter 2, he is a Jew, right? He understands what it would have been like. He, he knows the, 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 the grief, verse 24, that he talks about in 724. He, he understands it. And so, yeah, he gets onto them because he wants to put them in their place. But he also spends a lot of this book talking to them and encouraging them and saying, we had it so good, but don't forget the bad part of it either. Because we didn't have any way of salvation. Now we have a way of salvation. So we'll do chapter 8 next week, which I'm glad because I want to end in five minutes and there's no way I can do chapter 8 in five minutes. So um, any questions about 1 through 7? We'll hit those real quick and then we'll, we'll start with chapter 8 next week. 1 through 7, any questions? All righty. Thank you all very much. Appreciate it.